Obtuse Leadership Podcast, Episode 108, Core Health Part 2. Part 2. Last week, we started talking about emotionally healthy individuals, and we kind of left you with the idea that there are three practical things that any of us can do at any given time. We can insert some discipline into our life. We can become more self-aware where we start to understand our process and our emotions, and we can make sure that we are surrounding ourselves with the right people and you want more details on that, you can check that out. Today, Ray is back with me, and we, we want to kind of move into this, this concept of emotional health within our marriages, because uh, most people in ministry uh, do have some sort of spouse with them. They have somebody there who is helping this process with them. And it's been my observation when it comes to ministry that uh, the spouse needs to be just as called to the ministry uh, as the person on the platform, um, or they need to be they need to feel a call to serve the person on the platform while they're in ministry. Uh, otherwise, the church becomes the mistress in the family and in the marriage. And so um, the dynamic between ministry and marriage a lot of times is, is, a, is a fault line for couples, and that fault line will fracture over and over and over again. And so we want to make sure that we have emotionally healthy marriages. And so with that, Ray and I are going to continue our conversation and I'm just going to throw out a question, and we'll just start here. What does an emotionally healthy marriage look like? What does an emotionally healthy marriage look like, Ray? I think in one word, I would say one. One. Become one. Become one. Right? And we know that's what the scripture says, the two shall become one. And, um, and there's, a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of deep meaning to that. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so when we look at, when I, when I look at marriage, when, when I do marriage counseling, that my opening statement to the marriage is I'm not the wife's therapist. I'm not the husband's therapist. Hmm. I'm the relationships therapist. That's good. And so there's three entities to a marriage. Um, there's the, the wife, the husband and the relationship. Right. And so, and, and we know in, in Christian marriage, Christ has to be at the center but that's there's three entities the the husband the wife and the relationship hmm. so uh, do you see a lot of people approaching the the marriage where it's more about the husband or wife and 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 they're not thinking about the relationship yeah so i think when when that happens the sign of that is this what i need from you in our marriage is this hmm so what they're trying to find is they're trying to find somebody that completes them. Yep. And that's not what the purpose of the marriage is. And so what it is is what we the way we should evaluate it in my mind is what the relationship needs from me and what the relationship mm. needs from her. Mm. Not what I need and not what she needs. And so it's it's what's what does the relationship need? Mm. And so there's there are so many components to a marriage. So let me just go from a, on a practical standpoint with personality. Okay. Right. And then we can get into the gender differences, which crosses over with personality. So for example, if you look at my personality profile, I'm high in disagreeableness and my wife is higher in agreeableness. Okay. Okay. So I know that my wife avoids conflict at all cost. Okay. Right. So when, when, when things need to be handled, when somebody, let's say somebody that we've hired or somebody that we're paying, 
uh, doesn't do the job that they were supposed to do. I'm not putting that on my wife because her personality that that's very uncomfortable for her to call and to rebuttal with somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but the other thing is, is I also know that she, if I press too hard and I don't show grace, she's going to agree with me just to get out of the conflict. And that doesn't strengthen our marriage. It's true. And so another component would be like conscientiousness, which is attention to detail and organization. I'm very low in conscientiousness and my wife is very high. So our relationship needs for her to make sure that I'm structured, right? Uh, I don't miss my kids' sporting events. Um, it's probably not a good idea for me to, you know, run the finances. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not going to think of everything. Yeah. So she does a much better job at that stuff than I do. Yeah. So I need to be aware of the personality differences between me and my spouse and then I have to take that into account for what the relationship needs. Yeah. 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 So who then defines what the relationship needs? Because in my mind, I could just start playing that around for, for what I ultimately want. Well, the relationship dictates that we have, you know, two new rifles in the house by the end of the next week. You know, so who, who actually gets to define what the relationship needs? <clears throat> That's a good question. Because I think, so when Havana and Graham got married, they had a... um the, the the pastor that did their pre-marriage counseling, um, he had something wise to say about that very thing. So Havana goes, she says in their counseling session, she says, Graham has six guns. I don't know why he needs seven. And the pastor said, because he doesn't have seven. Mm. So that's kind of a joke to the question mm. that you ask. But um, I don't think it's funny. <laughs> I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't yeah. see a joke there. I saw wisdom. Right. See, yeah, that's I what I saw too. Yeah, but, I saw application. But I, I've, I have a feeling that Jenny and Charity both would disagree with that. Disagree with that. Yeah, so, probably true. <clears throat> go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so on a serious note, though, I mean, um, you you discuss everything. Like, what else does the relationship need? Um, obviously, if, uh, you know, you get the cabinets full of food and mm -hmm. all the bills are paid and there's extra money, then um, perhaps a gun is is appropriate. Is appropriate. Yeah. So we we as a couple have to then define what the relationship needs. Yeah, I think so. I think the I, I think practical things like personality, understanding personality, understanding the differences in gender, mm -hmm. and then and then I think most of the research when it comes to marriage uh, shows that if a couple doesn't take ninety minutes a week and discuss practical things that the relationship needs, then the relationship starts to disintegrate. Is that right? That's interesting. That's something that we could all do. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be 90 minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. So you can do, you know, 15 minutes at a time yeah. throughout the week. But 90 minutes a week of just discussing what the relationship needs. Yeah. See, in, in, in my mind, when it comes to the what the relationship needs, what I've seen time and time again is that people – are lying to themselves saying our relationship needs this when it's just the individual desire trying to dominate the other person. Right. Right. So one of the things that I've, I've, I know I've told this to people time and time again, compromise means I'm not getting everything I want. So if I'm completely happy with the, the needs within the relationship, then I'm probably dominating my spouse and they're not speaking up for themselves. 
You know what I mean? There should be some things that I'm doing to foster health in the relationship that I probably wouldn't do by default. Is that safe to say? I think, yeah, I think that's safe to say. And I think, um, I think also when the view that we have of a marriage, if it is, if, if the view of the marriage is skewed in any way, Mm -hmm. then you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to compromise appropriately. Okay, so what what is your view of marriage? So, first of all, marriage is forever. Okay. And ever. Yep. And ever. I agree right? with that. And I know it's popular for people to say, except for adultery. Hmm. But when I read through Matthew chapter 19, I don't see Jesus say that. Hmm. And we could go into that if we want to. But regardless, if you if you enter into a relationship with the idea that you can exit the relationship at some point. You're not going to, you're not going to be truthful. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And there's two things in my mind that every marriage needs ultimate vulnerability and ultimate virtue. That's good. And so vulnerability means that we're just going to open up and be truthful. But every time we're vulnerable, we're handing another person yep. the very weapon that can destroy us. Mm-hmm. If if it's not a weapon that can destroy you, you're not really being vulnerable. Correct. Right? And so virtue means that you're willing to take that weapon and manage it, but never use it. So you, you can have that weapon that can destroy your partner, but you keep it in the sheath where it belongs. When I was in high school, I remember my Sunday school teacher talking about marriage. And and I, I say I was in high school, it might even been middle school, but he said this and I never forgot it. He said that getting into a romantic relationship is like giving someone else an emotional gun pointed at your head at all times. Right. And they could pull the trigger. And then he started talking to the guys and he said, gentlemen, you need to understand that young ladies are like doves in the cleft of a rock. And he said, you're sticking your hand in front of that, that rock inviting them to come stand in the palm of your hand. And he said, how you treat them matters. That's God's creation. And you have the ability to destroy God's creation in the palm of your hands. So you need to be careful. That's good. And I, and I think that's exactly what you're saying. The vulnerability is giving the emotional gun to the other person. But when they give us that gun, we need to understand it's now in the palm of our hands and we can crush them if we're not careful. Right. Uh, that That's really good. And would you honestly be vulnerable with charity if – if it wasn't forever. That's, that's a good point. No, yeah. no, no. I, I do think that when it comes to emotional health within the, within the marriage, a lot of people were approaching it wrong to begin with. Mm-hmm. So they're not going into it with this idea that we're going to be in this marriage forever. They're going into this marriage with the, the idea that they're going to get to live the fairy tale life. Right. And, and ultimately, the fairy tale is about my happily ever after. You know, this person makes me happy. I envision us in the big house. I envision us walking down the beach together with the sunset, which all those things are nice. All those things are good. Hopefully, you get to experience some of those things. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point of marriage. The point of marriage is to say, I get to start practicing the things that God put inside of me that reflect him. Right. Sacrifice, serving, loving unconditionally someone else. And so who I pick to do that, I need to 
I need to view them as someone worthy enough for my sacrifice, where I want to do it. Right. When Jesus was on that cross, I, we don't know what was going through his head, but in my mind, he was envisioning us. This is why I'm going to suffer the way I am, because I want to save the elect. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm starting to look at my spouse, I need to look at them and say, this is a person that I deem so valuable that I'm willing to give everything for them until the day I die. If we don't, in my opinion, if we don't approach marriage from that, that mindset, we are never going to have emotional health because then we're going to have a broken person in our life. We're constantly, you know, having to deal with. Absolutely. And then, yeah, we resent serving them. And so, okay. I remember this time that Jenny and I were, we went to her grandma's house. Well, it was her grandma and grandpa's house. And grandma was in the kitchen with her ironing board out. And, um, she was ironing and I, I had noticed that she was ironing all of her husband's clothes, like mm. everything. Right. And so, and then she gets out and then she starts ironing his handkerchief. Mm. And so at this point I'm like, why do you iron his handkerchief? I can answer that, but go ahead. And this was her response. It's my reasonable act of worship to my God. That's the man he gave me and I'm serving him. Wow. Dang. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Yeah. And that could be said both ways. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Grandpa was serving her in a way that caused her to desire to do that. Oh, I'm, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And see, it's that mutual act of, of servanthood that makes this work. Because if it's just one person doing it, then it's just indentured servitude. Right. Right. But when it's both people going, you know, when it's both people serving the other in that same capacity, now you have a marriage and that's, what's beautiful about it. Yeah. So, so, you know, if, if emotional health and marriage is defined as oneness, then what, you know, how do I start forming that oneness? I mean, uh, what are some practical things I need to do to start forming that? Let's, let's pretend right now that me and me and charity are, are there's some distance there where there's more two than one at the moment. What are some practical things I can start to do to, to bring that oneness back together? What are some avenues I should take? So I, I, what I like to start with people is um, just breaking down what their life is like, right? So, so you get up in the morning, what's your day look like what, in, in your relationship? How's your marriage going from the time you get out of bed? Mm-hmm. And just walk through the day, right? Okay, so there's some things that we do every day that's repeated, right? Mm-hmm. And if marriage is forever, divorce isn't an option. Mm-hmm. Then it leaves you at two options. Be miserable for the next 60 years. Yep. Or work things out. Yes. Right. So that's the only two options you have. And nobody wants to be miserable, I presume. And so you start by, okay, so let's say, okay, so let's say Jenny and I get out of bed at six o'clock in the morning. And we leave the house around eight or 830. Okay, let's just say eight. Okay, so that's two hours of our day, every day. And if we fight when we get out of bed hmm. and we don't have a good routine for how to, how to, how to have a good morning, then that's, that's two hours a day, seven days a week. That's 14 hours a week times that by 60 years. Yeah. It, it, but just 14 hours a week of misery in the morning. Yep. 
Like that's worth getting right. Yeah. And so just having a, just how can you help each other get out of bed in the morning and have a great morning? And you negotiate that out. So for me, it's, it's pretty easy. It takes my wife two hours to get around. It takes me, you know, 20 minutes. Yeah. And that's if I'm taking my time. <laughs> and so, I, so I've got time. I've got time to cook us breakfast. Mm. I've got time to, you know, make the coffee and some of those kind of things. That's, that's easy. So, so oneness uh, can be developed in routine. Oh, I think so. Yeah. It, like trying to figure out who's going to be responsible for what and then not criticizing them for what they do or do it yourself. Yeah. So if it's my job to make the bed in the morning, then she has to decide whether she likes it or not. And if she doesn't like it, she can do it, but she doesn't have to criticize it. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Charity doesn't like me sharing this now because it's no longer true. But at one time it was. And I didn't tell her this for a long time. My pet peeve is dishes in the sink. I hate dishes in the sink. Uh, and there was a time when she was at home a little bit more. So I, I'd come home and there'd be dishes in the sink. It would just irritate the fire out of me at her. And it, one day it hit me. Why am I mad about this? I could just do the dishes myself. Right. Right. Why am I mad? If I walk in, I don't want them there. Put them away. It takes me five minutes. And then I'm not mad for an hour. Right. And so I started doing that. Every day I come home, I start doing dishes. And I never told her. I never said a word about it. I just started doing it. And I was happier. And, and one day I shared that with her and she didn't like that. So she starts doing, you know, she doesn't leave dishes in the sink anymore either. You talk about going to the serving your spouse thing. You know, she heard that that was my mindset and she decided that she wanted to serve, I guess, in in that way to make sure that's not there. So she doesn't like me share the story now because she's like, Hey, I don't leave dishes in the sink anymore. Um, but that's, there's a lot of truth to that. We, we get mad at our spouse for something that we can fix ourselves and we're sabotaging our oneness by our own preferences. Yeah. When we can just fix it. When we can just fix it. And, and yeah, we can think about these routines. So, um, going, you know, coming home every day and bedtime routine, yeah. mealtime routines. We do these things every day. And so we would rather sometimes spend our time fighting about arbitrary things or the vacation that we're going to go on or, mm-hmm. you know, things that happen every now and then or, um, they just come up once in a while, uh, and we don't we don't put work into the things that we do every day as a pattern and a, as a routine. And so we can we can create we can define our roles and what we're going to do, um, and trying to find solutions to make it better throughout the day. And that's going to save you hours of fighting. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is that if I'm going to foster oneness in my marriage then I need to look in the normal course and routine of life and dictate how I want that to go. In other words, I'm probably not going to foster oneness by coming up with a list of 20 things that we're going to do every week that we're not currently doing. No, because if you can get the things that you do every day right, you're not going to care about the other stuff. Correct. It, because it's it's minor, right? It's only major when it's it's on a list of a hundred other things. But when we, when we have a good routine throughout the day that happens every day, the little stuff doesn't matter anymore. Is there like a universal list of things that we should probably make happen, you know, every day, once a week, once a month, you know, is there, is there a list of things that, uh, foster oneness, like, you know, send a text message in the morning or, you know, make sure we talk for 10 minutes at night. Is there, is there any sort of arbitrary list there? Well, I think there are some things that we, we know, 
from research is important. Um, eating at least one meal every day together hmm. as a family. We know from research that's important. Um, for a husband and wife, going to bed together hmm. is super important. And there are so many people that don't do that. And I understand that in our culture, um, we have different work schedules and stuff like that too. And so those kind of things make it difficult. And so we're not talking about, we're not talking about uncontrollable things, but yeah. you know, when one, when one partner goes to bed and the other one stays up yep. to watch TV or YouTube or whatever they're doing, yep. um, that's not healthy. Yeah. I'd agree. What are some other things? Is there other things on there? Um, Dates, mm-hmm. you know, that's super important. Um, at least once a week, but twice a week is, and I understand kids and stuff like that. So, but once a week, just eating a meal with your, with your spouse mm-hmm. and going on a little date. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. Um, but I think also one, there's things not to do as okay. well. So one of the things that I encourage people to not do is not to talk to your spouse all day long via text message or social media. Okay. Why is that? Because when you come home, you've already told everything about your day and you, you don't even, you don't miss them. Yeah. It's healthy to miss people when they're not in your presence. Yeah. And so if I don't text my wife all day long, when she comes home, I'm happy to see her and we have a lot to talk about. Yep. And, but if we text all day long about our day, we come home, we have nothing to talk about. The only thing left on the table to talk about is problems. Mm. Which is obviously not going to be conducive for fostering oneness that's right yeah so we need to try to schedule positive interactions together Mm -hmm. to foster oneness right yeah whatever that may be for you and your spouse what what this is just a personal opinion of mine but it appears to me that couples who get intimacy right foster oneness yes so what role does that play i mean i obviously can make a case biblically you know, Adam and Eve became one. Right. He knew his wife. There's a knowing component to, right. to intimacy. There is a oneness uh, to intimacy. There is a, um, we have to work together for intimacy. I have to be in tune with my spouse for intimacy. I mean, there's a lot of things mm-hmm. about about that moment that fosters oneness. Is, is that, is there... Is that a, a right way to look at it? it? To me, it can be an avenue to create oneness for your spouse. I think it. I think it is. I think you know, practically speaking, with our with our spouses, sex is a is a way to create that oneness. Um, that's one of the components, and I think that's that's absolutely appropriate, and that's exactly what that word means uh, in the scripture, anyways. And then, but Jesus used the same word when he said, you know, some of you will prophesy, some of you will do this and that in my name, but um, I, I never knew you. you. Yeah. And that word no is the same. Interesting. It's the same word that Mary used when she said, how am I going to birth a son? I never knew a man. man. Yeah. And so, so God's obviously not asking us to have physical uh, oneness with him. Of course. So it's deeper than that, but it's on the same level of intimacy. Right. And so um, I think part of that too is, um, is understanding who who we are. Like, be curious about your partner. Hmm. So if if I'm dialoguing with my wife and all of a sudden she makes a facial expression, and this is really important early on, she makes a facial expression, I should 
instead of being offended by it, I should be more curious and be like, Hey, what was that? Hmm. You just made that facial expression. What are you, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Because I need to know what that means for the rest of my life. Yeah. The rest of my life. Because I want to know how she's thinking and feeling, especially if I'm the one that's given her a negative reaction. And I want to know what those facial cues mean because it's uh, one of my favorite scriptures is uh, in the Psalm. I think it's Psalm 32. Um, but it says, God says, I will guide you with my eye. Mm-hmm. That's when you know you have intimacy. Mm. Right? Yeah. We want this loud, booming voice of God and this miraculous earth shattering thing to happen, the building to shake, the wind to blow, like on the day of Pentecost. But, um, you know, how much more intimate is it when he can just look at us and we know what he's thinking? That is so true. When you start to be, and and you can do that with your friends too. You, you you have people that you're close to in life and you can start to tell Mm -hmm. what they're thinking in a social setting simply by their facial, right. Facial reactions. Um, that I've never thought about our relationship with God that way that the intuitive understanding of who he is through time and prayer and his word, worship, where he starts to reveal himself to us and we start to get in tune with who he is. It's the same process with our spouses. That is intimacy where the old couple can sit at dinner and never say a word to each other, and yet they love each other more than everybody else in the room. And communicated. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, sometimes everything doesn't have to be loud and booming. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. So if, if emotional health is oneness, what tends to be the warning signs that maybe my marriage is moving in an unhealthy direction? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really good question. And um, <clears throat> I, think, I think often when we're thinking about ourselves more than we are a partner mm-hmm. is, a, is a big cue. Um, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? Right? And so I know that, you know, my wife just got home from, from the boat show. She was gone all week. She hates being gone. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I, it's an adventure to go somewhere and do stuff. But for her, unless the family's with her, she just doesn't like being being gone. And so I could just tell she was having a, it was rough, right? So my question to her was, what can I do to make your day better? Right? That's when you, that when our concern for the other person is more important than our concern for ourselves. Mm. Um, we're, we're on the right path. But if we find ourselves in a pattern of thinking, what do I need? What do I need? What do I need? That's a sign of, um, that's a sign of unhealthy yeah. uh, emotions in a relationship. Is it really this simple that emotional health is when we're together in every sense of the word and emotional unhealth is when we're separate in every sense of the word? Yeah. Yeah. So if it's that simple, why do we complicate it so much? Because we're selfish. Okay, it's really it's really our own selfish desires that screw this up. Yeah, and we know we're selfish, right? We're we're fallen, we're yeah. fallen humans. We know we're selfish. Almost every decision we make is out of selfishness. That is correct. Like, think of anything. What do you want for dinner? Like, what do you want? If you answer, it's it was selfish. Yeah. Like you're thinking, what do I want? Yeah, which isn't necessarily bad. No, it's just when it comes at the expense of someone else. Right. Yeah. So I've always, in my premarital counseling with people, always talk about alignment. That, that's my theory yeah. of, of a healthy relationship. And it's the same thing you're saying. Are we heading the same direction? If we're heading the same direction, we're, we're working together. Mm-hmm. We're, we're equally yoked. We're, we're both pulling the burden of life in the same direction. Right. 
And, but the moment that, you know, sex or money or the kids or dreams and ambitions start to come in there, it, it starts to derail us, starts to pull us apart. You know, so we're trying to bring everything back together. It really is a oneness aspect of, of, of the relationship that tends to bring the health and happiness, you know, and that, that's what makes it so difficult for us to figure this out because every single couple has to figure that out for themselves. You right. know, the oneness for you and Jenny looks different than the oneness for Charity and I and every other, you know, relationship out there because we're all unique individuals and that, that uniqueness and then coming together, it makes it very, very difficult to figure that out. But we ultimately have to die to ourselves. And I think that leads to an interesting question because what I've seen a lot in church, and, and I'd be curious to get your perspective of this, is that you have one, one person, one entity within the relationship that wants oneness. They want this to work. But you have the other person that's moving into an uh, emotionally unhealthy state. They're starting to get more selfish. Um, they're starting to head in an opposite direction. And, and they can't bring them back in. So what do I do when my, my spouse is starting to slip into an emotionally unhealthy state, either with us as a couple or as an individual? You know, what, what do I need to do in those moments? To Is there anything I can do? Right. Well, I think, I think you need to talk about it sooner than later, right? We, we know some of these things are happening far before we deal with them a lot of times. Okay. And we wait too long to talk about it because we don't want conflict mm. and we don't, we don't want conflict to be in the relationship. And so often that keeps us or prevents us from, from discussing it. Sometimes it's that we don't want to know why they're slipping away because I think oftentimes we have a pretty good understanding of why they're slipping away. Mm. And we don't and want to confirm we, that. We don't want that confirmed to us mm. and but we don't want conflict either. So I, I think you, you talk about it sooner than later, right? So here's the idea of that. Um, <clears throat> maybe you don't want the, maybe you don't want the conflict, but here's a question to ask. Would I rather fight a baby dragon or a full grown dragon? It's good. Because it's much easier to slay a baby dragon than a full grown one. And the one thing we know about emotional distress, if it's untreated, it gets worse. It yep. grows and it gets uglier and it gets more mean. And so avoiding conflict in a relationship is delaying the inevitability and it will get worse. That is true. And it, once it slips into resentment, it's, it's pretty much over. Mm -hmm. It's hard without a miracle from God. It's hard to recover from resentment. It's hard to recover from resentment. Is it me or do, do couples have a hard time? communicating just as a general rule um this this idea of, of health being in, in oneness requires a high level of communication uh, obviously when we start to move to an emotionally unhealthy state there's a breakdown of communication somewhere um it's interesting you are right uh that most of the time we we see the writing on the wall because we're pretty perceptive early and we realize we have a problem something feels wrong but we don't communicate about it i mean it is it just me or, or, or do we have a communication problem as a general statement for a majority of our marriages? Yeah, I think we do. I think we have a communication problem in our society, one. Um, and then that bleeds into the other institutions that we, we engage in. And one of those being marriage. 
I think another one is raising kids, right? And um, church and all kinds of stuff, right? So uh, there's there's two big components. One, our culture is really pushing against this gender difference, and okay. there is there's there are specific there are very specific things that measure uh, gender differences, and one obviously is biology and hormones, right? So women have more estrogen than men. And men have more testosterone than women, okay. right? Testosterone is what causes men to be more aggressive. And, you know, men are not as nurturing. So it, even on personality traits, most men rate higher in disagreeableness than women. Yeah, just because they don't want to nurture it. They don't right. Yeah. And this is this what happens, right? It's been, we've been studying this for hundreds of years across cultures. And men are more disagreeable than women. Women are more nurturing than men. Um, and so then you look at, um, you, you look at trait neuroticism where this is where women experience negative, or if you're higher in trait neuroticism, you experience negative emotions more strongly than mm. other people, mm. right? Women tend to rank higher in trait neuroticism okay. than men. So men don't, men don't tend to feel negative emotions as strongly. Mm. So men, men just don't get as sad as women do. They don't typically get as anxious as women do. They don't typically get as fearful as women do. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're not fearful. It's not that they don't experience fear or sadness or, you know, feeling down or feeling anxious. It's just they don't feel it as strongly. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that happens in relationships when you don't understand that there are differences between men and women is a woman might be you know, she might be expressing emotions very strongly. She's sad. Something happened and she's crying or maybe the kids haven't come home. Right. And they're driving or something. Yep. And, and then she hears sirens. This is sorry, Jenny for this, but, uh, <clears throat> so she hears sirens. And so all of a sudden it's all the worst things. My baby's, my yeah. baby's had a wreck, you yep. know, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, men are just kind of, men don't feel that as strongly. And so they, then the question is asked, why don't you care? Mm. Right. Which is a very unfair thing to say to a dad, right? It's like, I do care. Yeah. But because there's a difference, that's a breakdown in communication because we don't understand the difference. And so we just assume that because I'm not experiencing the emotion as strongly as my wife, I must care less than her. And that's totally not true. Mm. That's good. goes back to our conversation last week about how emotions are complex anyways. Right. Yeah. And so you're, you're starting to approach this complexity is even different within the men and women, generally speaking, in the marriage. Right. So what's the other big breakdown? You said there was two big problems, communication, gender, and what was the other one? So just not understanding the difference between a dialogue and a, and a monologue. Mm. And so just a, a quick definition of the two Dialogue comes from the two uh, Greek words, dia and logos. And dia meaning through, uh, this back and forth, and logos meaning higher truth. And so when we're, when we're dialoguing with somebody, we're actually like, it, well, like in this conversation, we're, one of us is talking, the other one's listening, and actively listening, and then the other one responds, and we just go back and forth. And what we're trying to do in this podcast is come to some truth between the things that I know and that pastor also knows and trying to put all those ideas together and come up with some kind of higher truth. That's a dialogue. Yeah. A monologue is when there's a standalone truth being presented and the other person you're hoping the other person will just buy into it. 
And so oftentimes when we're communicating, we're monologuing at one another. We're not actually interested or curious about what the other person is saying. We just want them to buy into. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a sales transaction, trying to Mm -hmm. transfer belief to the other person rather than trying to work together to come up with the, the, the truth. Yeah. So when in that same vein, I guess, do we need to get better at practicing our dialogue, practicing our communication when the heat's not turned on? Is that part of the problem? You know, where um, for a husband and wife, a lot of times the conversations that they're having, the real conversations, not the not the surface level, but the real conversations they're having uh, have some sort of problem associated with them. So, you know, my wife and I, we sit down, we have a real conversation because money's tight and we need to figure out how to pay all these bills. We sit down and have a real conversation because one of our kids is going off the reservation. We're sitting down and having a real conversation because our parents are aging mm-hmm. and we got to figure out what we have to do about it. it. Is a lot of our oneness problems the fact that the only time we have real conversations is when we have a problem versus practicing dialogue and having real conversations about dreams or about the future or about what we're trying to accomplish right now. I hope that question makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. And I think, yeah, I think that it's, it's easier to practice when there's no skin in the game on anything. Right. And so, um, you know, we find ourselves doing this often. I catch myself where my son will be telling me something that like, I'm just not interested in it Yeah, because it hasn't, it's no interest to me. He's telling me about a video game. I don't play video games. I I hate video games. Mm -hmm. Like, but he doesn't. He loves them. And so he's wanting to tell me about it. And I have to make myself be interested in what he's saying. And the way I do that is I see how interested he is. And I'm more interested in the fact that he loves it rather than whether this is just a burden for me. So I catch myself sometimes just being like, come on, get to the point, get to the yep. point, you know. And so when I catch myself doing that, I should I should stop enough and go, look, I love this dude, even yep. though he's a punk sometimes. Yep. I love him. And yep. he likes what he's talking about. Yeah. And I should like the fact that he likes it. Man, that's good. And and be more curious about it. That's how you foster relationships and become one. He knows I doesn't I don't like it. But it doesn't mean I can't be interested in him being interested in it. This is gonna sound cheesy, but two things to piggyback off of that. The first one's a little bit cheesy, the other one is a real example. The curiosity aspect of our spouse is intriguing to me because years and years ago, Charity and I had an opportunity to go on just a little getaway for the weekend. And we went to Mount Magazine, Arkansas. And and this was a very pivotal moment for our marriage. And I had done something uh, for her. I'd ordered a box of conversation starters off of Amazon. Um, and I don't even know how I saw them or what the origin of that was. But anyways, I ordered these conversation starters because I thought she might just like that, you know? So we had to drive there. It was like a three hour drive. It was a little bit of a drive for us. And then when we got there, you know, the plan was not to watch any TV or anything. I thought, well, this, this could just be fun. This would be something she'd be interested in. And this box of conversation starters was actually really good. I mean, very well written questions that spark conversations. And that was one of the, the funnest weekends we've had. And we've actually bought, multiple packs of those conversation starters just because they're funny because they arouse curiosity about your spouse and you start having those sort of conversations, which I think for most guys sounds like a a dreadful thing to have to go through. But I personally really enjoyed it um, because it was interesting, you know, and I think for guys, a lot of times what's, 
you know, throwing water on the fire of our oneness is the fact that we're not finding the intrigue within our spouse. You know, curiosity needs to, needs to have some intrigue there. You know, guys, when we're kids, we start taking things apart because we want to understand how that works. We'll tear a motor apart or tear into a VCR. We might not be able to put it back together, but we want to know how it works. You know, we take our guns apart because we want to know how they work. And, and if we take that same intrigue to our wives and say, I want to understand why she does what she does, I'm, I'm interested in that. She's a mechanical being just like everything else, but she's a mechanical being with God's you know, spirit inside of her. She is created in the image and likeness of God. That, that should be something that should arouse some curiosity in her own life, uh, and that will help. In that same vein, I also heard Willie George talk about that with his kids, a lot in the same way that you're talking about. He said that when his kids were in high school, all the other kids wanted to be at his house. And he said, let me tell you why. He said, because I found out what my kids were into, and then I championed that. He said, I, I don't ride skateboards. He said, I have no idea how to ride a skateboard. He said, but we had skate ramps in front of our house because that's what our, my kids wanted to be a part of. And he said, so I built it. And he said, I started learning about it. And he said, so kids were at my house and they weren't at somebody else's house. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that same principle applies to our spouses. If we're curious about them and we're having dialogues about fun things and we're doing things together, we're fostering that oneness then when in the inevitable problems come, we're going to work through them a lot quicker. We're, we're going to be able to get through them a lot, a lot faster. I, 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 I just think that's vital. Right. I think this is vital to understand. Why do people, is, is it just selfishness? Why do people struggle to overcome simple problems? I, <clears throat> focus. I think, you know, it's, we have a tendency to want to win. And so we go into um, we go into a contention with our partners often to try to win, right? And winning indicates that somebody has to come out on top. Somebody has to be a winner, and which means somebody has to lose. The problem is both people walk away wounded, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's a better it's a healthier way to look at it by facing conflict, conflict resolution. Yeah, right. So we're just trying to resolve conflict. That's and so when, when both people are trying to resolve conflict, the idea is resolving the conflict, not winning. And so uh, that's another way. You're working together to come up with a solution to the problem that's present. And so nobody gets wounded in that scenario. That's right. And so it's, the, it's, it's kind of the way we think about things, the way we focus on, on this. And again, one of the reasons why it's hard to focus on, on thinking this way is because well, we haven't eliminated the divorce option. Mm. Because, again, when you're only left with two options, to be miserable for 60 years or work it out, then you work it out. Let's talk about that for a second because I, I was thinking about that a moment ago. I, I hear what you're saying. Be miserable for 60 years. And yet, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have been married for 30, 40 years, and they're miserable. Why do they? Why do we have a tendency to settle for our own iniquities versus getting them worked out? I think that that comes down to kind of the the devil you knows better than the devil you don't know in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, maybe they've given up hope, but they don't feel like they have. You know, and it could be a just a value of I'm not getting a divorce is keeping them together, which is good. But um, they need, yeah. You'd think they would be more motivated to work it out, but which most people are, 
Um, but yeah, it's, and maybe they've tried several things and maybe they've even tried counseling and mm-hmm. stuff and they just don't feel like there's any hope left. You know, my theory on this, what's your theory? My theory is that it is more difficult to fix the problem than just live with the problem. Right. You know, I, I've, I've shared, I don't know if I've shared this here at JFA, but charity and I have been doing worship together as far as playing music together since we were 15 years old. Now, my wife is an interesting person because you're talking about personality tests and differences and everything. And I, I guarantee you, she's never taken a real personality test to my knowledge, but I promise you if she did like the disc test, for example, has a scale on it. Hers is going to be pretty close to flat. Okay. So her dominance, you know, versus her, I don't remember all the acronym of it, but her personality is going to be pretty flat. There's not going to be peaks or valleys because charity tends to have different personality traits come out in different environments. So at home, by and large, charity is pretty passive. You know, you asked the question earlier, what do you want to eat? Charity's answer most of the time, and she means it is, I don't care. She really doesn't care. I mean, she just genuinely doesn't care by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, but her dominance comes out when it comes to music because she cares a lot and she's good at it. Austin has an opinion on literally everything. And so when you ask me, what do I want to eat? I'm going to have an opinion and I'm going to want to get my way. So at home, Charity and I very rarely fight. Because, you know, we just we, we agree on all the big stuff and the little stuff. She doesn't seem to care enough, and so just whatever, right? But when it comes to practicing music, buddy, it, we have been known to have full-on meltdown fights at worship practice. Right. How embarrassing is that? Because our both of our dominant personalities come out. But here's the problem. And we'd lived this way for years. The problem is the only time that would happen is at worship practice. And we just moved on because it wasn't that it wasn't quote that big of a deal. Right. Okay. So it never spilled over into home. It never spilled into other area of our life. It was just uh, 30 minutes on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night that we would argue with each other. And so anyways, one day it occurs to me that we look like a bunch of morons in front of our team. I mean, we are, we are pastors in a church arguing with each other during worship practice. How stupid is that? And so I, I come to her one Sunday, and I said, hey, we need to stop doing that. I mean, that's embarrassing. I mean, what kind of leader is that? And she says, you're right. That, that is embarrassing. We should stop arguing in front of worship. You know, on worship rehearsal, we're, we're going to have a good time together. Uh, no more arguing. Perfect. Move on. So problem fixed, right? No. Next week, it was a knockdown drag out. And for the first time, then it did spill into home. Because now we identified what we wanted. Mm-hmm. We identified a problem. We said we're going to fix the problem. And now we're holding each other accountable without holding ourselves accountable. Right. And, buddy, we had like a two-hour fight on that Sunday afternoon. Okay, so we, we get through this big, long fight, lots of tears, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we got it worked out. The next week, it was worse. I mean, I remember we're locked into the bedroom. And we're going into three or four in the afternoon now arguing, which we never do about anything. And we're just going around the same tree over and over and over. And it hit me in the moment. This is why people live with their junk for 60 years, because sometimes it's harder to get out of something Mm -hmm. and to fix it than it is just to live with it. 
we had never fought at home because of what had happened at a worship rehearsal until we decided to fix it. And now here we are seven hours deep over a period of two weeks in a fight because we're now trying to fix the problem. And, and I, 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 th- I just think a lot of people, it's just easier just to ignore it yeah. than it is to actually fix it because fixing things takes time. It's painful. It takes intentionality. Mm-hmm. But here, here's been the interesting thing that has come out of that is that when you learn how to fix some of your biggest problems, it is so much easier to fix the little ones. Yeah. Because you have a template. You have a template to apply. And 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 out of that season came a, a sermon I preached on hidden iniquity. Every single one of us has some hidden iniquity in our life. And removing that is one of the most painful experiences that we'll ever have. So we just we, we write off our iniquity. It's just how I am. Mm-hmm. We we argue as a husband and wife at worship rehearsal because she's dominant personality and I'm a dominant personality. That's just who we are. No harm, no foul. That's how God created us. But there is harm and there is foul because it was impeding our ability to lead. Right. And so for us to for us to identify that and say no, that might be how we are, but that's not how we want to be. Man, that was tough. That is tough, and it's the it's a sacrificial story, right? There's <clears throat> there's parts of us that have to die in order for resurrection to happen in our life. Yeah, and but the dying part is painful, mm-hmm. right? And it's what we avoid. Yeah, is we avoid it hardcore. Yeah, but we have to. We yeah. have to get to the point where we allow things to die, just like Paul said, "I die daily." Right? Yeah. We have to allow things to die off, and that's that iniquity, and it is tough. It's a tough battle. So, do you think that most divorce ultimately comes because one or both people are not willing to quote die? I think so. Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. I think I think going into marriage with the lack of commitment is a big part as well. Yeah. But we also have other research that shows us that if you cohabitate before you get married, you're more, more likely to get divorced. Hmm. And that research has been done over and over. It's not even like it's not even debatable any longer. Why is that? Well, I think that there's one message that you give when you decide you're going to move in with one another. Right? It's the message is well, you'll do for now. Hmm. In in the event that somebody comes along that might be better than you, I might trade you in. Or I find out something about you I don't really like. Right. Yeah. In yeah. the meantime, I want all the benefits that come with it. Yeah. Yeah. And both are both are making that same commitment, right? And so there's there is no commitment. So it's like um and that's that's the harsh reality of what we're saying to one another when we move in is you're not worth committing to, but in the event that something better comes along, I want to keep my options open. Yeah. Hmm. And so, um, and so then if those people do get married, it was, it then it was just kind of like, well, you're the best I could do. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> you're not really choosing somebody to live your life with. So I really need to go into marriage with the mindset of death first. You know, I mean, I know that sounds weird to say it out loud, but in a lot of ways, marriage is saying I'm choosing to die to myself. Right. You know, and, and we don't talk about that. And, and frankly, we don't talk about that in, in marriage counseling, the two become one. And, and, and we say it, and I think it, it is true that you, you still are an autonomous person. Yes. You're still a unique person. You're not destroying who God created you to be. On the other hand, 
you are agreeing to your own the, the terms of your own death. Yes. I mean, it is literally in the vows till death does us part. But until the physical death, there is going to be a lot of emotional and spiritual deaths that we are going to have to come, you know, mm-hmm. to to agree to if we're going to get to the end of the term, which is physical death. You know, I'm 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 going to die to what I want. I have to die to my opinions and my ideas sometimes. I have to die to my own dreams sometimes right. in order to make this work. And if both people are doing that, obviously we know there's health. It's when one person or both people stop doing that that it's ultimately it's ultimately over after that. Right. Yeah. So if we were kind of to bring this a little bit uh, to a closure here, uh, emotional health in our marriages is ultimately going to be founded upon oneness. I mean, when we are one, we're emotionally healthy, and the only way that we're going to become one is when we are together. We, we have to be together, and, and we need to look how to build togetherness into our routines. We need to define what we want our marriage to look like. We need to define what that togetherness is going to look like, and then we need to, we need to insert that into our routines, and we need to look for the, the everyday uh, things that we go through and dictate how that's going to, to look between us and our spouses and when that happens, we also need to build into that routine times to foster dialogue, not mm-hmm. monologue, not, you know, you know, uh, superficial, you know, passing stuff, but actual dialogue where we are learning about our spouse, where we're arousing intrigue and curiosity about our spouse. Uh, and, and, and that intrigue and that curiosity is leading to conversation uh, that's leading to places where perhaps we, we, we do have to sacrifice. We do have to die for ourselves, but it also births new things, births dreams and ideas, uh, for our marriage. And if we can keep that pattern going, that togetherness, that routine, that dialogue, uh, that curiosity, then ultimately we are going to be one and we're, we're going to be emotionally healthy. Is, is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, making sure that we have core values, you know, absolutely th- that are similar. Absolutely. Right? Like, I'm a Christian. You're a non-Christian. We should get married. Yeah. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Yeah. There's probably a whole nother conversation that we could have about premarital, um, premarital standards that that need to be, to need to be bent for sure. The bottom line is this, we want to have emotionally healthy marriages. And the only way that's going to ultimately happen is when we are one. Uh, I love what Ray was saying a second ago about how, Jesus knew us, you know, God knows us. And and that's what we want with our spouse. And when we get emotionally healthy, then we're going to be better at painting the gospel to a lost and broken world. There are people who do not know their spouse and they definitely don't know God. So when we foster that oneness in our marriages as ministry leaders, then what we're going to do is we're going to paint the picture to everyone around us of what the gospel looks like, how Jesus came and died for the church. And now the church is living for Christ. And that's ultimately what marriage does. Hey, I hope this was a benefit to you. God bless you. We'll catch you next week.